Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt Hartley, how are you? Good, how are you doing? So good. Life is good. Um, what's new and exciting in your world? Hmm. You know, I think... The best thing is that there's nothing like really big happening, like no crisis, no, um, even just chilling out some of my projects that I was working on just in favor of more social time and just quiet moments of peaceful whatever with family and friends. I had a bonfire on Sunday night with all of our, with um, a big group of my friends who have you know, we've done some psychedelics together. And so this is a really intimate group. And, you know, what's new and exciting is that it's just, the, you know, small, simple moments that you that make life valuable. And that is new and exciting enough for me now. Yeah, I love it. I did, uh, I did several weddings this week. Um, oh, I'm really enjoying this whole officiant thing. You really you're helping people kind of on like one of the best days of their life. Mm hmm people are happy. It's a great day. Um, but the one little thing that did happen, I had to crawl through some barbed wire to get to the place where they wanted to do the ceremony and everybody got through the barbed wire, except for me who got my leg caught and tore up my knee, tore shredded my pants, blood all over. So here I am doing the ceremony with pants with shreds in them and blood coming through and, but you know, so be it. It's his life. Yeah. That's a moment where you're like, Oh, I still have an ego. And it's still capable of being embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. There's definitely shame, plenty of shame to go around in a situation like that. Mm. I love it. Um, well, today, what I thought we'd do is have a conversation about if you or I were the ruler of the world or ruler of a country, what we would do to instantly make life better. Like on this almost awakened path, we realize that societies are set up to benefit the perpetuation of the society and and there's parts of that are deeply important by the way we were talking about vikings before we went on mm -hmm. it becomes crystal clear that whoever the decision makers at the top in earlier societies they had to be seen as being the voice of their gods you know the king for instance um because decisions had to be made and you had to live with them and somebody has to make those hard decisions and I am, over the last few months, really convinced that maybe the way we've built our system is the best way we could have built it. In other words, yeah, you can make improvements, but there comes a point where if you value the individual too far, it all falls apart and you have to start over again anyway. And mm -hmm. so there's been this slow line, like, like the United States of America, for instance, and when it comes in and, you know, 1776 and it builds the foundation of, of what America is going to be. And you can sense like the world, if you back up 500 years before that or a thousand years before that, there's this slow move from like violent societies, warring societies to trying to figure out to get to a place where at least most of the time 
there's peace and people have enough um, what they perceive as freedom and safety while still getting up every day and being um, motivated to create the widgets and the nice things for the people at the top. Mm. And uh, it is quite a thing. But um, the, the goal of today's episode was to talk about things that we would do if we were in charge to make the world an instantly better place. Uh, and whatever that means to you or means to me. And we can kind of maybe start off with how you thought about this problem and maybe kind of an overarching motivation of what you were trying to get at. And I'll share the same and then we'll kind of go maybe one at a time or two at a time yeah. through our list. Yeah. So when you came up with this idea, my first instant reaction was like, oh, because it's really easy to like come on here and like, oh, oh yeah. I studied this in college and here's all the issues with this and here's all of our biases. And we just get to be the expert on how everything else is stupid. And it's fun. <laughs> That's a very fun game for me to play. And then when you had this challenge of like, OK, let's put together an episode on what we would actually do to change it, like some practical changes that we could actually make. Um, I, I did have that moment of like, oh, but it's so much, e you know, and it is, it is easier to um, criticize things than it is to build things. Mm -hmm. So I did think about my list. I'm, mo I'm focused on America and just if I was in charge of mm -hmm. America, what things I would throw my weight behind. And I, I was very much kind of on the same page. And I think, I think you and I are on the same page about this is, is that if you try to just dismantle systems entirely human nature just creates new systems inevitably you know inevitably and so we have to have this balance where you have some kind of system you try to make it the least harmful that systems can be so that individuals can have the space and the power to create small communities to have the power to craft their own lives to raise you know to have and raise children and and so it's very it's very hard to kind of find the balance between dealing with some of the toxic areas of, of religion or institutions, but also trying to value the things that they they do accomplish. And that is a very nuanced space because it's very easy to be on one side of that debate or the other. And we're trying to kind of mark this middle space where we can maybe make some improvements. So it was a very, it was a very good challenge. So that's kind of how I approached it. I just kind of focused on America and things that I would kind of tweak in the system to make it more healthier for people. Yeah. And I wrote this, I put my overarching goal was to prioritize every facet of public life, favoring wiser decision-making reduced involvement of ego and eliminating intentional harm and unnecessary trauma while at the same time giving our military, because there's one that has to do with that, our military the best chance to thwart outside enemies from destroying what we are building. Wiser people with smaller egos being able to sit down and come up with serious concepts that improve society while also tackling, uh, or well, sorry, while also taking all reasonable steps to give us the best chance to defend and eliminate enemies who are a threat to that progress. And, uh, and, and when I, I think I'll... You don't mind. I think I'll start. Yeah, go ahead. Because because the military one is, as I got into this, I couldn't avoid it. And here's why. Mm -hmm. If we create a society of really healthy people who are low ego, full of compassion and empathy, who know how to sit with their feelings, who want to work out disagreement uh, 
by talking it out in a healthy way. You can build the best country in the planet, but you're one battle away from being gone. And, and you really do have to be, you have to be not only the biggest and the strongest, but you have to be the most advanced in terms of technology. Like we live in a world today where it's only a matter of time before somebody, one of these countries like Russia or somebody builds, you know, robots that can go out into the battlefield, know the good guys from the bad guys, immediately spot humans and eliminate the ones that wants to. And whether you, no matter how nice you want your country to be, no matter how kind you want it to be, you have to have a military that goes to every length to ensure uh, that you are not destroyed by enemies because everything you build is then gone. And it brings a lot of questions in, in terms of ethics of how mm -hmm. you fight battles and behind the and scenes. And borders and ethical Interrogations of and... Mm. Um, you know, the rules of war and that's a complicated thing. And I don't pretend for a moment to uh, recognize all the things that go into making sure our military has a strong position, no matter who threatens us. But I did say, I, but I came up with that every human in my society, if able, and obviously there's exceptions for disabilities and things, but every human who's able has to serve five years in the military. Hmm. And military is to be paid well and must be incentivized to always be prepared for enemies. The top-notch technology, always thinking outside the box. And as much as I want to treat people good, I think when it comes to the military, I think I'm going to make leniency for, uh, for loopholes and rules that allow us to always be at the forefront of that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And because otherwise the rest of my society falls the moment somebody bigger or stronger thinks we're weak enough that they can come get us. Hmm. So that's my first one. Okay. Pro my, my initial response, some pros and cons I see to this. So one of the pros to this, and you see this in other countries who have either you have to serve in the military for, you know, a year or you have, or even in some Buddhist countries, you have to go to and be a monk for three months is kind of the requirement. It, it does give, um, some structure and a place for young men to be because whenever you have a society where you have kind of frustrated young men with nothing to do that's always a problem and so i see by requiring five years of military service that does give something for the young men to work for and, and the hierarchies that, that go into all of that and getting in shape and the discipline and respect. And I see that being a positive. My concern with that is that if you require military service, then you are, you have to have an enemy. So you almost are creating the wars and the conflicts that you're going in to save because you have to have something for these guys to do. So I'm afraid that that going too far might look like going into the military, having all this kind of money and resources and young men and um, trigger happy, whatever women to, if you're, if we're gender neutral on this role, um, I'd be afraid that it would cause more war and conflict in the world just for the sake of us having 
the ability to try to be everywhere at once and getting involved in everything. And there are many times, I mean, thousands of times where our involvement in other countries issues um, were highly unethical and led to country takedowns. And so I'm, I'd be concerned about that aspe aspect of it, that you're creating enemies that way by forcing military involvement. What do you think? You're muted, you're muted. I can resolve those, but then I need to have a list more than five or so. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. okay. So I can resolve those, but those are yeah. in like 20 to 25. Is in okay, list. all right, all right. It's so, interesting, that's interesting. Yeah, but you're right. Those are definitely issues that will arise. Yeah. I just think if you're gonna protect this great thing you're gonna build, you have to have the scariest, and I don't mean you have to be completely unethical, but you do have to, you have to prioritize that you're going to yeah. be able to handle any enemy that comes along. Okay, your num what's your what's the first okay, one? Okay, I'm really excited about my first one. My other Love. my other ones are like, uh, maybe this would work. This one, this this would be my campaign slogan. Are you ready? I'm really excited about my first one. So my first one is that in America, to be a church that is tax exempt, you have to be a community center in your community, which means you are required to have meditation classes. You're required to have childcare. You're required to have a soup kitchen. You're required to have um, abuse and addiction support. And you can list all the things that you want a community center to be. And each church, you know, if you want to check off your meditation thing and you want to do Christ Christian specific meditation, fine. Fine, you have the power to do that. But there's maybe 10 things that you have to do in order to prove I am an asset to this community that deserves to be tax exempt. And if you choose that you do not want to play that game and you do not want to be a community service, then you are no longer tax exempt and you will be taxed like a corporation and all of the tithing will be taxed as such. That to me is like my number one, if we could change something tomorrow, is that, I mean, the money in evangelical Christianity, the money in Mormonism, that tomorrow could go to these community centers where people could get so much needed support. And then to kind of have that public pressure to say, are you really a community service? Because that was the deal. The deal was you get to be tax exempt because you're, you're providing services to the community. And now it's like, okay, these are the services that we require for you to be tax exempt. And then that throws a lot, not all the money, some churches are going to choose not to, but that's going to throw a lot of money into either taxes from churches and a lot of money into um, the social services and getting people back into using these buildings for something that's good. It forces the hand of religion. Yeah. So I love it. When, when I did an interview uh, on the homelessness here in Southern Utah, and that was one that I, I went solo with, but um, in that conversation, it became clear, I think her name was Carol. Carol had like 10 different facets of her nonprofit that were addressing in serious ways um, homelessness. Not only did they have a homeless shelter, but they had low income housing apartments that they bought like old broken down hotels and turned them into really cheap apartments. Um, they had a garden, they had a, like a barber shop, they had uh, pet care, uh, child care. Uh, they had tons of, um, things that they were doing that would address homelessness. Either the homeless folks would benefit in some way, either working for or getting something from these services that went out. So I, I love the comprehensive idea that churches need to provide such a thing. Now, 
part of the trouble you'll run into is that some churches don't have much money at all. And then you got churches like Mormonism, right? And I think with the LDS church, for instance, and any church that accumulates wealth, Scientology is another one that just hoards money. I think you should be able to keep so many years worth of your current operating budget, but that you always, every year you have to adjust it. You're like three years or five Mm -hmm. years, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, and the next year, like, yeah, you can save the money beyond that, but the next year you still only get five years worth of operating budget. So if you're over, then you need to take that money and put it back into the community or something. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what you came up with would be a dynamic way to figure out how to get entities that say they are not for profit, say they're doing good in the community and force them to put their money where their mouth is literally. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And we had a comment that said, would you treat tax exempt foundations the same? Yeah. We, yeah. If you know, in this magical world where I'm the president, sure. You know, if you're a nonprofit for this, if you want to claim that you are tax exempt because you are providing services to the community, these are the needs of the community. And you could, you know, again, you could, in this magical world, you could add things. So if you are not Utah and there's not a lot of churches where you are, then maybe you would have um, some support to be able to make that place, right? Because it'd be tax exempt. Maybe you could get um, grants for that kind of thing, just so that there are these places that exist. Um, and, and the churches, to me, seems like the easiest access to do that, because either way, you're going to have to pay taxes, which are going to go to these services, or you're going to have to you're going to have to actually help. There was nothing. There's a lot of things that I felt shame about when I was a practicing Mormon. But one of those was when I was in Phoenix and realizing that every church participated in a food kitchen busing system, except for my church. Like that brought me so much shame. And just that could change just overnight with like you got to play this game or you're paying taxes. Uh, Even just, so I'm going to go, we're going to go off on tangents. So the church, the idea that the church is a good thing in society. uh, Again, watching this show Vikings, every community has its religious center, but the religious center isn't really there to give people hope, although it, it does, but it's really there so that everyone feels pressure to fit in a box. Um, the church holds a lot of power in older societies. Uh, anyway, just interesting. But I, I do love the idea. And there probably needs to be a sort of minimum, like the church has to make this much a year to fall into mm-hmm. this kind of category. Because mm-hmm. if you're a church and you're making 80,000 bucks a year and you got 20 you know, parishioners and mm-hmm. you probably don't have the means to do that. But if you make a half million bucks a year or more, then you probably have the ability to do something and maybe there's tiers of things that they could do, but I think it's a great idea. It it certainly makes these things that claim to be something force their hand to be the thing they claim to be. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, All right. Let me, here's, this was my go. This is the reason I came up with this episode was because I, the next two things I think are crucial. Every human being has free access to a therapist. Um, you, every human being can go see a, a professional, you know, educated degree holding therapist, let's say whatever it is twice a month, and you're not going to get something great. You're going to get kind of the County defender, you know, when it comes to law enforcement, you're going to get the, the guy who, who is happy to do that position probably because he enjoys doing what he's doing and wants to help people in that level. But it tends to be people who aren't as 
good or as qualified at times um, who do that. But every person should have a therapist and you should be able to go to see that therapist twice a month um, without any, like, like and, and I think the moment you do that, you take the shame and kind of the embarrassment of doing that away. Everybody should go see a therapist and have someone yeah. to talk to and work out things that are in their world. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. The two things that come up for me is would that create a system where there's so many therapists Mm -hmm. that um, it becomes like give that 500 years and essentially that becomes the system that we're then yeah. trying to dismantle. Yeah, yeah. no, it does. It does. <laughs> because if you're a narcissist, if you're a narcissist, you're going to be want, want to be a therapist and you just see all your clients and there's an endless amount of clients that you can, you know, show off your knowledge to. If you're a pedophile, you're going to want to be a child therapist and there'll be an endless amount of children coming to see you. I mean, it, yeah. And then my second concern is that I, I heard an argument on TikTok once that maybe our push for therapy is kind of capitalism's way of putting a Band-Aid on the situation of more bigger systemic problems with how we're structuring society. And maybe therapy is just the thing that helps us to deal with having to go to work in our relationships or whatever, but maybe having the therapy there is actually stopping us from maybe dismantling some things about capitalism that actually makes us really unhealthy. Mm. So it's interesting. I see where you're going with it. My fear would that would be that in, you know, a couple hundred years, it would become the system that we're trying to dismantle again. We probably are going to get to a point where there will be some sort of artificial intelligence therapist. Yeah, there's got to, right? That can yeah. just like take you through the most basic thing, mm -hmm. like like the most common things that therapists do just all day, every day. They're always yeah. doing these things. That's interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting mm. idea. Because I've thought about that for like, you know, there's been a lot of talk that, you know, once once a man can communicate with a sex robot and it feels like a person, that's going to be um, very interesting for what that does to society, but I never thought when you about, say feels like a person. Yeah. Oh, you mean looks feels like, like a person. Feels, feels like I'm talking yeah. to a person. I get emotions. Okay. I'm falling. So let's say they already got whatever. the other got the yeah. other kind of Not feels that. like a person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, emotionally, you know, it starts to feel like a person too. They pass the Turing test. Um, but that's interesting to think about for therapy. That could you could you see? Um, a, an AI therapist and have it be even better than what a human could do mm. because they could actually get into the data and say, actually, for what you're dealing with, this approach is going to be statistically the best way to get you through this. I've mm. never thought that. That's fascinating. Mm. Okay. The thing that comes up immediately, I'll let you go into number two here. The thing that comes up immediately is anytime you and I now are discussing any of these points that we've come up with, you you recognize how hard it is to actually build it's a society. It's so hard. It's not easy because <laughs> you think easy. you're coming up with like this easy fix for a problem, and then you don't know. Oh yeah, like oh like there's that and there's that and oh that could make it worse. And yeah, it's not easy stuff. No, this is this is hard. <laughs> this is why I was like, oh, Bill, this is gonna be hard. <laughs> yeah. All right. So my number two is getting together. A, 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 vari a variety of people, you'll have your constitutional list and you'll, you can even have your NRA person or whatever, and actually amend the second amendment of the American constitution. And, and I understand, you know, it's not the guns that are the problem, it's the people that are a problem, but why are we putting the problem in the hands of 
Why are we putting guns in the hands of the problem? I understand that, you know, Bill and I are going to have at least a couple things on this list that are about mental health and blah, blah, blah. But, but the amount and easy accessibility of guns in this country and the amount of deaths accidental or on purpose, especially as we become, as people become more nihilistic, I actually went in and I read the journals of the Columbine killers. Mm. And I know there's like a lot of myth about them and they were just emo kids or whatever. But when you read their journals and it, it really was a cry of, of deep nihilism of a hatred of being itself. And that the best thing to do is to remove yourself from beingness and take out as many people as possible with you. And so I am concerned as, as, as we start to break away from structure and we're seeing, you know, with Gen Z, we're seeing anxiety and depression and addiction. We're seeing, um, yeah, we're seeing some instability, let's just say having the, the ex just such an easy accessibility to guns just seems like such a problem. And I think if we actually sat down, because most Americans believe in some kind of common sense gun laws, most Americans are on board with this. It's the powers that be that are kind of stopping that from happening, especially the NRA. So uh, for me, one of my, one of my tickets would be let's actually sit down and, um, write, write some common sense gun laws and re reduce the amount and number. And, you know, there's no reason in the middle of Las Vegas where you're not hunting any animals for you to own this many number of weapons for self-defense for this kind of gun for self-defense. You know, eventually we have to just face the consequences of that and, and the numbers of that. So I, I would, mm. I would put in some weight behind that problem is a problem. So uh, having worked at a place that sold guns. I managed a pawn shop in Hurricane, Utah for uh, seven to eight years. And the rules are very different depending on where you go to get a gun. So if you walk into my pawn shop and you wanted to buy a gun, you fill out a uh, federal form 4473, which is a three page form that the, the, the computer had you where you froze with your eyes closed. And so it was kind of like you were bored to death of what I was <laughs> saying, but no, you're good. You're good. So um, when you come in to buy a gun and family pawn, you fill out this three page form. We call the, um, uh, I forget what the thing is called, but you, I, I make a phone call to a government agency. They ask me for uh, ID information, driver's license number, I need to tell them where the person was born. I give them basically a basic amount of information that they can go into their database and figure out if that person's allowed to have a gun or not. If you have any accounts of domestic violence, even a charge, you're not allowed to buy a gun. If you have a warrant for your arrest, even on a parking ticket, you can't buy a gun. If you have a felony on your record, you cannot buy a gun. Um, and if you live in the home with somebody who has any of those things, you can't buy a gun. So uh, if you have like your adult son living in your house, he's not allowed to buy a gun, neither can you. But if you go to a gun show and mm -hmm. you buy a gun from a private person selling guns there, and there are tons of guns being sold there, you walk up, hand over cash and take your gun. Mm -hmm. And so the rules are not uniform. They're not, they're not consistent. And in other words, there are absolute loopholes that the criminal can easily would know that's how they get their gun and they're going to go do it that way. Um, yeah. At the pawn I would, shop, I would we do would, like, go ahead, finish that. 
the pawn shop, we'd have maybe 10 denials a year. Yeah. But I can guarantee they're in the same geographic area. There are hundreds of guns being bought by folks who can't buy guns, but because there's loopholes, depending on where you do it. Yeah. And I would do like a whole level like we do in car insurance, like you or with cars, you know, to get a car and to be safe to drive on the road, because if you're not, then you're going to kill someone on the street. We have, we have a lot. We have, we have insurance. You have to take a driver's test. You have to update your driver's license. You have to come in and sometimes retake your test, check your eyes. I mean, there's a lot that you have to do to be able to say, I am capable and responsible enough to handle this responsibility that could cause death to others. Right. And we're very on board with that with cars. And then with guns, it's all of a sudden, you know, a whole different thing. So um, yeah, so I, I think the gun thing would be interesting to actually say, can we, can we finally break through where we're stuck in this conversation and make some legitimate changes here? All right, you're, you're muted, Bill. Sorry about that. The only wrench I can see in that idea, uh, that we make it essentially really there's a lot of kind of rigmarole that folks have to go through to get a gun is that a lot of people maybe just don't buy them. And, and for most of us, we go like, ah, no big deal. I do think on some level there is value when you are trying to put a little bit of fear into outside enemies outside of the country that if they came in, for instance, if China or Russia decided they wanted to invade the United States, you really would have to prepare that, one out of three households or something that people have weapons and not that they're, they'd be insignificant compared to the weapons that the military has, but it's still real. Mm. And so there is still some added layer of like, yeah, we probably shouldn't go there mm. when, when the citizens are highly armed. I wonder if that, I, so see, I wonder if that argument becomes less, um, less true the more technology becomes the way yeah, that we do warfare so mm -hmm. so it's like you know we used to everybody used to have swords and you need to have horses and you need to have a cavalry and you need to have a navy and now today like you know do we really need submarines it's like no we're, we're doing warfare competition differently now um and so maybe some of those can shift away from away from guns because technology is going to be the game and whoever's playing the best technology has the best weapon in town. So maybe that could shift that a little bit, but yeah. And, and anyway. I think you're hundred percent right. That if technology is the, what the military has in every country is so far more advanced than me having a, a semi-auto rifle in my home or a 12 gauge shotgun or a 45 pistol, then, yeah, I mean, like I said at the beginning, the whole idea of robots that could just yeah. pick out the there's enemy. A, yeah, there's a comedian, and sometimes comedians can, like, nail this, you know, perfectly with their joke. Good comedians can do this. And there's a comedian, I can't remember who it was, who talked about how the NRA always uses this argument that, you know, we need to, we need to have um, weapons in the hands of citizens so that, you know, we can overthrow the government if we need to. And I understand the argument. Like, you know, I'm not... Um, just obedient to the governments for government's sake. But he said, wouldn't it be funny if every year, like the Hunger Games, you had a hundred NRA people and one person from the government and you said, okay, like this, here's your big chance. You get to, you get to defend yourself from the government. 
And, uh, you know, just one guy just sitting in his house could just fly his drone or fly his whatever. And he sees everybody and he just blows them all up. And, um, you know, are we really, are, is that argument holding water anymore considering that, um, you could do that. You could arm everyone and the government has tools that you would still lose. And so what's, yeah. you know, what's the argument? How do we, how do we handle that in terms of you do, I, I understand you don't want the government to have the only access to weapons, but is it a myth to ourselves that we could actually throw overthrow the military yeah. if we wanted to? Is that a myth that is right. even real? The comedian yeah. did that much more funny than I explained no, no, it, but, but it was totally. really interesting to listen to. No, no, totally. And so there's obviously issues with that as well. And I'm 100% on board with you. We have, again, we have about 10 people a year that would come through Family Pawn and try to buy firearms that weren't allowed to have them. And they knew they weren't allowed to have them. Um, but they try to get through the, you know, the process and still get them. And obviously, we want to have better um, regulations on folks who are going to make unhealthy decisions about those. And I think anything that we could do it and you're right, you could get 15 really smart informed people around this issue from various perspectives, sit down and say like, we just, we got to come up with something and uh, we got to pick the things that are going to make people safer. And I think that could be done. So I really like that one. Um, we, we sort of already have it here, but every human receives free uh, basic healthcare and we sort of have it, but it's this weird thing where like really poor people go to the emergency room, which costs extra money. And then they leave and essentially just gets taken care of, or there's some way that it doesn't really get paid in full. And then the services for everybody else is really expensive and they go to emergency rooms. That's where you have to do it. And so it's not really going to like an urgent care center or other places like your family physician where things could be handled much less expensive. But I think every human being in the society that I run has to have, I wouldn't even say basic, like moderate healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that any society that says it values the individual on any level has to be able to ensure that it's most impoverished among its society, those who have mental instability, those who have uh, other kinds of disabilities where they can't work, they have to be able to go see a doctor and get medicine for things that ail them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, and I think we could do better here. We spend a lot of money on a lot of things mm -hmm. and it's weird. The things we spend money on and the things we don't. Yeah. Even with, you know, flow falling out of the window last summer, there's been times cause we're entrepreneurs. There's times that we have in health insurance and there's times that we don't. And we were lucky that it was, it was a time that we had at least some help. But without that, even some help that we had, I mean, you know, stuff like that could bankrupt you, you know, yeah. where, where we're, you're in. And there's no reason in, you know, middle America that something happens like that and your life is over. Like you're, you know, you, you file for bankruptcy and you have nothing. So that's a problem. And then also with that, I think you could throw in, you know, that we shut down mental institutions and then it just kind of became prisons. So you could, you know, having money for basic needs includes the people in our society who are the most mentally impoverished also. And the only place we have for them currently is prisons. And then there's a whole prison complex that's dealing with that and seems really unethical. 
the, so that's a whole other thing. This idea that mental hospitals, and again, they were people they were that go awful. into the yeah. sort of are trapped, but then we get rid of them. Um, yeah, it is, it is strange. It, it's also strange. Again, I, I know there's sort of reasons for this and I don't, I don't make a light of this, but when I was a kid in school in the public school system in Ohio in the 1980s, there were special needs classes with kids with mental disabilities, uh, down syndrome. Again, I'm going to use the word, but I'm, I mean it in the most right way, mental retardation and that kind of stuff. Right. And it seems like something changed and we made it so that we couldn't use any of those words anymore. But at the same time, those folks aren't as visible in our society anymore either. And I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't know if they're just home and the parents aren't taking them out. I don't, I don't know what the story is, but it just feels like we made it yeah. unsafe to say it. And then they weren't in our perception anymore. Yeah, that's that's interesting because there was that time in the 50s where if you had um, developmental delays with your kid that were significant, everyone basically told you to put them in a mental institution and never come back. Like that was the thing. Like it was so shameful. You just essentially left them there. And that's awful. And then what we did with schools, I think, is, you know, when we started to say, let's not segregate these kids, let's make sure that they are part of the classroom because they're part of society. And then you expected teachers to teach not only the most advanced students, but also the developmentally delayed students and everyone in between. And you have 30 yeah. kids in a classroom and you're expected to do that. Essentially, they just kind of got lost. Yeah. And that's what we see now is that we just don't have the resources for every teacher to do an individualized class plan for every student in their classroom. Yeah. I mean, teachers don't last any more than five years. They burned out. I burned out. I couldn't go back either. It's too hard. So, you know, it's, it's, we need something in between, put them so into gen ed and society that we essentially lose, you know, they just fall through the cracks and we lose them, but not send them to a mental institution and then forget about them. There has to be something better than those two options. Yeah. My, uh, okay. Did you give your third one yet? No, my third one. Yeah. Uh, so I thought a lot about, I know the quick, easy answer is like, oh, if we could just teach this class in school, you know, if we could just input, you know, if we could just change school to do this and, and changing Gen Ed education, who was it? Elon Musk, who says it's easier to go to Mars than to try to change the American public school system. Like it's, it's, it's so, it'd be so hard to change. So I only let myself have one. Okay. I'm going to give myself one class that I can implement. Obviously I could maybe, you know, if I could restructure the whole thing, uh, maybe I'd be more ambitious. Um, but it's going to be really hard to do to change anything about the education system. But the one class, if I could have the power to implement into high schools is a course on the science of happiness. And to me, when you look at what Yale did, so Yale, they have all these students that are stressed out, um, that are burned out, bright kids, bright kids that are burning out. They show up at the science of happiness class completely, it completely changes their life. And then they go on to finish and do better than they were before. So statistically, we can say, you're going to do better at Yale, you're going to be a better lawyer, you're not going to drop out of school if you take this class. Um, and so we had statistics that show this is the way to best human, 
this is your best chance. This is the science-driven way to be the most happy, fulfilled, um, productive, whatever, however you want to call it, human, the best way to human. And then it was so popular. Everybody signed up for the class. It was so popular that they put it online for free. And now millions of people take this course. It helps them. Something like that. And I would love just once in the school curriculum for there to be a time to say, let's just talk about the best and worst ways to human. History used to be able to do this. We do this less so in history now. Um, history classes used to be where you could explore some of these themes. But could we, could religion step aside enough to allow us to just do, we're not going to talk about religion. We're not going to get everybody mad. We're just going to say, this is what the science shows on, on the best ways and the worst ways to, um, to, to be human. The science of happiness, the science, the science of human flourishment. And to offer that at, at that age, I think would, would really change a lot of people's lives. And instead of, um, instead of, you know, sewing used to be like, you need to have the skill to survive. And so we would teach all the eighth graders how to sew. And it's like, you know what? I like today, you do not need sewing to survive. You just don't, it's not a skill that you need. And so if we could replace some of those skills that we've been able to outsource and it's not really a need anymore, could we get in a class about really just human happiness and the science behind it and give people at least one opportunity in society to get that. That's my third. Yeah. No, no, no. And I, I originally had one of these, something like this, and I tried to kind of work it into my overarching theme, but it's this idea that there should be a class in school where kids learn about how to manage their feelings. There should be a class in school where kids learn what, enthusiastic consent is and how to negotiate for their needs in a relationship. There should be and what abuse is like mm -hmm. what? Yeah. Like what does manipulation look like? How subtle it can be to watch out for systems and organizations that try to manipulate and coerce you. And, and I think it all plays into what you just said, which is a course on how to be happy and uh, content and, per, you know, to feel productive and needed in this world and to feel as if you belong. Mm -hmm. um, these would all go into it. And so I'm, I'm a huge fan of that one. I think that would be a great thing. And it would, it would require us some really smart, wise people to sit down and completely write out mm -hmm. a class like that. But as you point out, the Yale course gives you a certain facet. I think some of the things, for instance, that um, uh, John Ogden's done have give some of us uh, that uh, there certainly is other work in other places, Brene Brown. I mean, there's certainly, folks on the frontier of this kind of arena um, that would give us kind of those tools in really easy language that would help us to, to explain these mm -hmm. things to kids. Yeah, so I'm a big fan almost, of that one. You could almost do like the 10 worst things to watch out for. Like if you're doing this, <laughs> like if you're a heroin addict, if you're in a cult, if you're being manipulated, abused, like, like go over some of the, you know, how we get involved in that to give, kids some kind of resource for that and then yeah those positive things too um here are the best things that we have here's the things to do first if you're feeling depressed and now we know that you know exercise and eating healthy does as much as you know depression medication and studies that we're seeing so like let's get into the science of all that and you could you could advertise this course as the as doing what it did for Yale, which is it's not about we're going to stop being productive and we're going to stop, 
caring about kids getting jobs and all of that, which is what school is for. You know, you need these skills so that you can have a job, but actually they're going to do better in these jobs if we can give them some basic human skills. So we kind of couch it that way. So it doesn't sound too woo to people. Yeah. I like it. The, the next one I've got here is every human where possible should have a space as their own place to sleep and to bathe and to store some minimum amount of things. But I already saw the problem with this. I mean, if you, what if you're in, let's say we build this, it's a giant 48 story apartment complex and however many of them you need in every city, right? Um, folks who live in ways that could put other people at danger, hoarders, people with certain mental instabilities, um, certain people with health needs because of their situation that having them be in a building with other people and far away from the front door would, would be problematic. Um, do you give everybody a bathroom? Do you have like a community bathroom outside this apartment? I, I don't know, but everybody deserves a place to rest their head. And it goes back to this idea that when I sat down and tried to write these out, I start to realize just how hard it is mm-hmm. to accommodate human beings within a society so that they have a, a minimum amount of care yeah. and compassion towards them. I think that's why I went over to the church's idea and putting the churches in charge make of, them responsible. of make them responsible of trying to, in whatever way fits their religion, find little solutions for the people in their community to be able to, you have to show that you're taking care of the homeless in your community in some way. Right. Um, because yeah, when we look at the projects, which was, I, I really think trying they tried to do it from a place of compassion. Can we can we provide large scale low income housing for people to be able to just have a place to live? And then the issue with the projects now and wondering if that was even the, the best idea um, is a really complex debate. I've listened to a couple debates about the project specifically and whether or not it was a good idea because it's just really messy for all the reasons that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and again, I guess at the end of the day, you can't do anything about people who will not follow the rules that are required to be able to live in a place Mm -hmm. where space is given to them. Like folks are, because of uh, their own, uh, again, mental disabilities or their own mental illness, there's going to be folks who just can't even if you set really basic rules, they just won't be able to follow those. And I don't know what you do about that. I guess yeah. folks who kind of exit themselves off of the process, I guess we leave that alone and it's, they did that to themselves, but on some level, you and I both realized they exactly didn't too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was my, uh, my fourth one. Yeah. I wonder if you could do something like the Peace Corps where you at least have a place for people to go if they're, Again, then you have to be mentally and physically able. So yeah. then you're, you're losing a lot of people. But I mean, if somebody nice. has schizophrenia, for instance, they're just never, if they have a serious case of schizophrenia, yeah. they're never and going to be And that's genetic. Okay. And so it's in that, so the family doesn't have the resources and what do you do? And it's so hard. It's so yeah. hard. All right. My fourth was um, removing the ban on psychedelics. And the reason I did that, even though that opens up some issues, no doubt that's going to open up some issues. I think at the very least it would for all the issues that it opens up for all the people who are going to try it to escape or um, have a bad trip, which happens and be 
it's less than 1%, but there are people who go on a trip and they're psychologically unhinged for the rest of their life. Like I, I there's problems with this. I, I get that there's problems, but I think by unbanning it and creating um, at least a capitalist incentive to create a center where you go for a three day weekend and you go do yoga and there's a therapist and you do psychedelics and you da da da. Um, to be able to do that um, work would would really change a lot of people's lives and change the world too. And to someone explained it on TikTok, how is it possible that this plant, this natural thing that we, it's not like cocaine that like, you know, you have to refine or like, you know, like we do with some other drugs that just, you know, it doesn't grow on the tree like that. When we're talking about something that grows naturally in the ground that we co-evolved with, that really like, like for you, who advocates for a stoned ape theory that that our species is very much involved with these mushrooms to be able to make them illegal to to us seems almost absurd so i would do that every culture has again not necessarily the modern moment but if you go back in time every culture had its medicine men mm -hmm. every culture had uh, certain plants which gave you an altered consciousness and then they would they would devise rituals around that mm -hmm. and so everyone had the opportunity over the course of a life to have these experiences where their consciousness was altered and they got to learn things from it um the, the thing i find really cool about medicine plant medicines and and altering one's uh, state of awareness is that when you teach a class in a school every kid is listening to the same instruction when you have a Sunday school at church, everybody's listening to the same lesson. When 10 people in a room take LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca, everybody is learning something different. And then so these medicine tools, often you'll see these ceremonies involve uh, either that night when things settle down or the next morning, usually. Uh, the folks will all get together and re kind of uh, integrate that experience. And it gives you a chance to share your insights with other people in the room and they get to learn from that. So sometimes I don't think people notice this, but plant medicines or, or conscious altering tools really give everyone in the group a varied experience that the opportunity to learn something unique is exponentially greater than when everyone in a situation takes the same instruction. Yeah. That's and, so and I, true for me. Yeah. And so I think that I think that's a great one is to have plant medicines uh, be available to every human being. And again, we could make it we could make the list. I mean, you don't have to go like, oh, well, you left this one off. That's really sad. Like if you had five of them, mm, cannabis, psilocybin, mushrooms, um, peyote. Um, what's the cactus? San Pedro cactus. I mean, there's whatever. It'd be easy. Yeah. And some of the more, like if there's ones that are more sacred to indigenous communities, maybe there's, there's a way that you can protect that so that indigenous yeah. communities are still involved in those ceremonies, but at yeah. least, at least open that there is, cause we're trying to find some way for medicine man to come into capitalism, right? That's what we're trying yeah. to do here. So if we, <clears throat> if we maybe legalized it, there would be incentives for people to create these communities, these places where you can go and do retreats and these medicine men that, that we could actually support them in a capitalistic society for what they do, for the healing power that they bring. Sitting in those, like those conversations that you were talking about where everybody talks about their journey. I mean, 
really I can point to it as, you know, top three life-changing experiences for sure. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be once a week or once every three months, even if you allow people twice a year to do that, mm-hmm. twice a year, you can go to a place and you get uh, a single day's dose of psilocybin mushrooms, right? Five hours worth, or, and you can pick which one of these five things you could take. And you're really giving people a chance to learn in a safe, a safer way, I guess, um, without all this, uh, policing of of these tools and all the nonsense that happened in the war on drugs where these tools were described falsely as doing lots of unhealthy things to us and we we are we haven't even come to grips yet with just how much the government lied about these things yeah. uh, it was it was a mass scale deception yeah. uh, about these tools um, all right, all right, number my, five. yep my fifth one and this was my favorite one um i looked into this quite a bit when i because i done some research years ago. It was one of the ones I put on my list and then I went back and kind of reviewed some of the thoughts on it. So no more two party system politically. That's it. Hmm. That the voting system is what they call a approval voting system or a ranked choice. And the way this works, I'm going to try to describe this. The way this works is that you would have a ballot where you would mark your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, your fourth choice, your fifth choice. And by the way, this voting system has less flaws than the current way we do it, but it has more flaws than the other voting system, which I'm going to, I'm going to explain here in a moment, but you mark your, and actually this is the one that's called ranked choice. So you mark them first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. Um, if the first choice, if the best first choice doesn't get uh, 50% of the vote or more, then the lowest candidate is gone. They're out. Mm-hmm. And now they retally the votes again, whereas now your second, anybody who voted for the person who's been discarded, their second choice now goes to those candidates. Mm -hmm. And you keep filtering out people Mm -hmm. until you get someone who, uh, someone who's broke the 50% mark and they're the one. Because the flaw in the current voting system is that if you have three candidates, anytime you have more than two candidates, and it happens often in uh, U.S. political elections, when you have more than two candidates, uh, the third candidate or fourth candidate or anybody beyond the first two who is aligned sort of with one of the other two in terms of their beliefs or their stances, what ends up happening is that the the person who could have won or should have won, who ha- would have had more than 50% of the vote if it was just the top two candidates, ends up, like for instance, Ross Perot, ends up draining off votes from Bush and then Clinton ends up winning. And uh, and so they're trying to figure out a way that you get around that. And so the ranked choice is better, but the ranked choice has uh, flaws to it too. And so the approval voting system was one where you essentially marked that you you would like any of these. These are the candidates you approve of and anybody you didn't mark are people you disapproved of. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were YouTube videos. I'll put some of these links into the show notes. But there, and and these, all of these systems of voting have flaws, but the research has been done and the flaws in the ones I just mentioned, ranked voting and approval voting are significantly less problematic than the flaws in the current voting system that we use. It also, when you do it this way, it also rewards people for having better ideas rather than speaking ill of their opponent. Mm. And I really think to start creating a more healthy society, 
you have to start valuing putting people into office who have the um the the uh, the healthiness in their own inner capacity and the ability to work through problems, the ability to come up with good ideas rather than a popularity contest or rather than, uh, you know, this guy spoke crap on that guy. So I guess I'm not going to vote for that guy. Uh, there just has to, and, and there is, there are better ways of doing it. And I think putting a better system in place immediately would lead to uh, beneficial results going down the road. Yeah. I'm going to change my number five because I like yours better. <laughs> that That's a really good one. It's a really good one because every year we have to watch this dance in the primaries. We're like, who can be the most liberal and who can be the most conservative? And then they have to try to like dance to the middle. And, and it's just this weird, yeah. it's, this, it's this weird thing that we have to go through every time. And then, you know, nobody's excited, even between a Biden or a Trump, it's like, this, this is the best that we have. Like even on whatever side you're on of that line or whoever you voted for, you're probably weren't super excited about either one of them. Cause it's, it's, it's rough and it, it creates the, the system creates this problem. So I, I really, really love that one. That's a good one. Okay. All your right. fifth one. My fifth one. So if I were to go in, I was thinking about, the problem of religion and how I wanted to deal with that because some of the problems that we're facing in having to have a global conversation and a data-driven global conversation, or at least a countrywide conversation on these things, we're going to need people on earth, right? Not working towards their whatever heaven. Like I need you here. Like, let's look at this data. It's the only way we're going to solve some of these problems. And so you're going to have to somehow um, tighten tighten the reins of, of, of religion on people. And so I was thinking, how do I do this? If I were to practically introduce something that would limit the power of religion, um, what would I do? And I think what I would do is do what Daniel Dennett has said that we should do is that our history classes should include um, a large section, especially because, you know, our history class is becoming obsolete because you know, you can look up all these dates. And so we have to change history classes in general to make them more meaningful. But he said that we should be including a large chunk of history to be the history of religion, because it's such a crucial part of our story to understand. And so his argument is that the fastest way, and he has some data to, to support this, if you listen to his lectures, that the best way to get kind of the next generation to back off on some of these truth claims is to see how many gods there are, how many Jesus-like characters with Jesus-like mythology, virgin mothers there are, for people to see how things that we think are solid, like the Bible or even the concept of God to Judaism has changed. And so if you can show the history of this is what we just keep doing over and over. And you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be anti-theist about it when you're creating this curriculum and religions can get involved in writing their own little section. But if people could see the history of religion and how we create gods and the common themes that we have, perhaps we can break the spell and, um, and allow religion to not have such a tide of, 
try to hold on people. And that would be actually the fastest way to get a society to outgrow religion is that the history of religion actually needs to be included in education because the fastest way to get someone to let go of religion is not to debate whatever Bible verse they want to debate, but to actually show here's the history of what God is and what religions are. And here's what we've been doing for tens of thousands of years. And then it just, it invites this thought of like, maybe what I think is real, these other people, these millions, billions of people all thought theirs were real. It just gives that little bit of room of doubt to be able to pull back on religion so that we can have these data-driven conversations that we need in order to get to the next level. So that's a Daniel Dennett idea. I love that. I, I think that one is incredible um to have people go into a class have to have uh young people go into a class where they learn essentially the book sapiens learn essentially mm -hmm. joseph campbell's mm -hmm. the power of myth um recognize you know, learn about all the religions that have died all the ones that are currently be being born in the last five years uh how many people have come claiming they're a messiah how many people have claimed to talk to god uh, how many sacred texts there are and what are the flaws of all of that i, I think you would be doing the i think yeah. it would work I think and you don't even have works. to like you don't even have to spell it out for people you could just list everything and people can kind of come to that conclusion but the yeah. fascinating thing is atheists across the, you know upon hearing this uh pretty famous talk um talk that he did um you know, there was this whole atheist movement. Yes, let's do history of religion. And then all the religious people are like, no, 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 no. We find yeah. we actually want Isn't that weird? to be we actually want religion to be out of schools. You know what? We changed our mind. We wanted the Bible club. We wanted prayer. But you know what? We changed our mind. Religion needs to be out of schools. <laughs> it is weird that the group with no belief in God would love a mm. accurate historical class on the history of religion and the religions want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. interesting. I love that. So uh, I gave five, you gave five. What I learned from this again, I, on the back end of this uh, episode, I am convinced that it's a miracle. We actually have society built as well <laughs> as it is that yeah. fixing things are, is not as easy as we think it is. And that there really is a lot of testing thinking it out, talking it out, bouncing ideas off of people, test, you know, putting a, a pilot program into place. Um, it really does take a lot of work to figure out what the flaws of an idea are, what the benefit, what the real rubber meets the road benefits of an idea are, and whether something thought to be a good idea or feasible on the front end turns out to not be a good idea or is just too hard to implement on the back end. Um, I am really grateful that I am not in charge of any society mm -hmm. and having to fix any of it. It's much easier to be me on the outside, just complaining about it or critiquing it or shining a light on it. Um, it takes a lot of groundwork to build a system and you're building on the systems that were built before. And all of that is really complex stuff. Yeah. And the question that I go back to for me too is how much do you want the system itself to change? You know, we want, we want 
we're wanting this system to be ethical and to, to be all these things. And if systems can't ever get there because of human nature is the best thing that we can do is, is have, you know, tinker with these things where we can, but at least have some kind of system running so that people have the freedom to make their own little communities and not be sent to prison or, you know, the gulag or something like that. So as long as you have some kind of, societal structure where you do have the ability to um craft your life a little bit is that the best that we can do as far as human systems just yeah just making sure you have the freedom to do that yeah so it'll be interesting to see how society changes in this country and in the world over the next 100 years or 200 years 500 years because all of this stuff is really messy stuff and and what we think makes something better may end up causing its complete downfall and destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I just, this helped me to kind of just go like, you know what, be grateful that people have put systems together as well as they have, at least in, in to some degree. It's sort yeah. of lucky. I've had that humbling moment. I remember, um, I don't know if it was the insurrection or COVID or something was happening where I remember registering one of my kids for kindergarten and having this feeling that I've never had before, which was, I really hope that there's a society for my child to go to kindergarten to. Mm. Um, because at the time, whatever it was just felt really destabilizing. And I'd never had that thought before because of course you and I coming from a high demand religion, we want to burn bridges. We want to blow up institutions. We want to F the patriarchy. Um, and I still do, but, but I've, I've since then made more space for the values that the, the limitations and the values that systems provide so that you can have the freedom to craft your life. Yeah. A sort of a short episode this week, folks, but if you're listening or watching uh, this episode, we'd love to know what you think about these 10 ideas. If you have thoughts on how those could be implemented uh, in a way that is more beneficial to society. We'd love to hear it. If you see flaws with these ideas that we didn't mention in today's show, we'd love you to put that in the comments. Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that folks, if you're out there and you're almost awakened too, that you have thought of some of the maybe ideas as we were conversating about things you think would make the world better. We'd love to hear your ideas. And if we get a, a decent enough list of those uh, in the comments, either on YouTube or on our website, almostawakened.org, We'll have another episode follow-up with your ideas, and we can talk about what we think about the value of the things you think if implemented in the society that you're the ruler over, that the buck stops with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could talk about whether those things could make society better, and I'm sure you have great ideas that we didn't even think of. Yeah, I'm I'm sure of that. Someone said earlier on that this sounds like a great um, conversation to have around the bonfire with some psychedelics. And that is yeah. true. So if you're, if you want to kind of join this kind of fire conversation, that bonfire conversation that Bill and I are having, I would love to. And if you love our, co- you know, our campaign platform here, you, you know, you got to support the campaign. So right. <laughs> support Send the podcast. Funds, right. If you want Bill and Britt to be the new <laughs> world leaders, so we can implement these changes. Right. Send five bucks a month by going to yeah. almostawaken.org. Uh, anything else from you, Britt? You said something you ha- about. I, guess, um, I have two things, and then, yeah, please. and then we'll wrap up. So just just a reminder for next week. Next week, I have a um, pretty popular TikTok guy named Matt Hirschberger, 
Um, his TikTok handle is Better Strangers Books, and he's kind of an expert on nihilism. And he mentioned quite a few voices that I'd never even heard of. So we're gonna mm. we're gonna um, talk about nihilism and resources next week. That'll be really interesting. And then I also wanted to share one thing, just because I knew Bill would love it, and it's um, it's similar to our conversation today. So. I asked chat GPT to recreate the 10 commandments based on modern values. And so I want to leave us with what chat GPT has to offer um, the situation based on kind of the values we have as society today. And it's, some of these are similar to our list. So number one, thou shalt not perpetuate systems of oppression or marginalization, but actively work to dismantle them to promote equality and justice for all. Number two, you shalt not, thou shalt not uh, ignore or dismiss the experiences and perspectives of marginalized groups, but instead listen deeply and learn from their wisdom and lived experiences. Ooh, I like this. I knew. I knew you would. Number three, thou shalt not prioritize individual gain or profit over the well-being of the community and the planet, but instead work towards sustainability and collective well-being. Man. Number four, isn't this so much better? <laughs> God, is, God can't do near as good as artificial intelligence. Oh my intelligence. gosh, I know. I mean, if this came down from a mountain on tablets, I would be tempted God's to like, believe Don't that there was a God. God's like, don't use my name in vain. <laughs> yeah. All right, number four. Thou shalt cultivate a deep sense of compassion and empathy toward all living beings, recognizing mm. their inherent worth and dignity. Number mm. five. Thou shalt not engage in harmful or destructive behaviors towards oneself or others, but instead prioritize physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Number six, thou shalt continuously seek knowledge, growth, learning, embracing new ideas and perspectives with curiosity and openness. Imagine if that was one of the Ten Commandments when we were in religion. Mm. Uh, number seven, thou shalt not engage in dishonest or deceitful practices in one's personal or professional life, but instead cultivate a spirit of honesty and transparency in all mm. dealings. Mm. Number eight, thou shalt actively work towards building bridges and promoting understanding and collaboration between diverse individuals and communities. Number nine, thou shalt not use one's power and privilege to uplift and empower those. Oh, thou shalt, sorry. Thou shalt use one's power and privilege to uplift and empower those who have been historically marginalized or oppressed. Number mm. 10, thou shalt recognize the interconnectedness of all beings and the environment and work towards creating a more just equitable and sustainable world for all. I think artificial intelligence chat GPT just created uh, the best religion on the planet. <laughs> so that was really interesting. And something like that gives me hope that, that if the 10 commandments was what that society needed 5,000 years ago, and based on our values in society today, our best values, the best morality that we're bringing to the table, if these were our 10 commandments, then that shows some growth. And if that shows some growth over 5,000 years, that our sense of morality um, has has improved, then maybe the next 5,000 years can, can actually continue to do so. That would be the optimist side of me coming through. Do you, don't you think it's strange, again, we'd have to get kind of orthodox Christians to answer this, but the idea like, okay, so you have the most omnipotent being in the universe and he came up with that list of 10 and we just typed into chat GPT <laughs> to give us its list of 10. And if we compare the two, one is so much more well thought out. One 
covers so much more ground. One is uh, much more kind to all humans, no matter how they're different. It's kind of amazing that. Yeah. I think the Orthodox argument, if I were to like put on an apologist hat would be something like because of the 10 commandments, we were able to build Western society. And so that's the ground that kind of built Western society that we needed in order to get society to a point where you could have this chat GPT, right? The 10 commandments. And that all of that is on the foundation of the original 10 commandments. I think that's what they would say. Will you copy and paste that to me? Yeah, in, of course. Uh, in Facebook messenger. And I'll put it yeah. at the bottom of this episode. So folks can see those again. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send that awesome. to you. So that's I, it. I for think that's me. amazing. Yeah, cool. That um, awesome folks. Uh, podcast website, almostawaken.org. Uh, no campaign at all here, but folks, if you do want to donate uh, to the podcast and help keep Brit and I having these conversations, uh, you can click the donate button on the website and send five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. We deeply appreciate it. It means a lot to us. And uh, we're really grateful for the chance to come on and to share thoughts and ideas with you and to create a conversation where all of us are leaning into spirituality, separated at least in part from religion, and leaning into a better, healthier, uh, more productive second half of life. Yeah. And thanks for the challenge this week, Bill. This was, I thought about it a lot all week. So it was a yeah. good challenge. I love how quick each of us were to find flaws in the other person's <laughs> ideas too. So we're all going to have to go back to the drawing board and try to do it again. And we look forward folks to your comments about what you think yeah, for uh, sure. could be done to make a better world. And, and with that, we'll let you guys go. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Bill. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman. 